0: about silly things. People fake it about serious things. Well, I think we all have a good bonfire, don't we? We love bonfire night. We love uh, celebrating it. I don't think many of us really think about why we celebrate uh, bonfire night. Well, the man behind the celebration is a man called Guy Fawkes. Now, Guy Fawkes was the creme de la creme of fakers. He was an anti-government terrorist and he was caught red-handed underneath Parliament with enough explosives to blow the whole building up and kill everyone inside. Yet, yeah, what did he say when he uh, was taken to court and he asked how he pleaded? Well, you guessed it. He pleaded not guilty. Court red handed, pleaded not guilty, completely faking his innocence. And it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I think we too are good at faking things in life, aren't we? I think we fake everything from listening at work, listening to our boss, listening at school, listening at university. We fake injuries or fouls in sport to gain an advantage. Or maybe more seriously, we fake caring about other people. Or maybe even worse of all, we fake our passion for Jesus. We fake our passion for Jesus and his word. It's very easy, isn't it, to come to church every week, to go to the conferences, to go to the summer camps, to come to every service the church puts on, yet never really mean it. We can say the right things, we can recite the Sunday school answers, we can sing the songs with passion, but deep down, our hearts are not in it. God is not really at the center. And in this evening's passage, we're going to see a very similar thing with the people in Haggai's day who faked it. Haggai the prophet is telling Israel that they're faking it, that they might be doing and saying the right things, but they weren't authentically, obediently living as they should. Just remember with me the whole context of Haggai is that a good number of Israelites, God's people, about 50,000 or so, have ventured back to the promised land after they were exiled from it for disobedience. They've come back to Jerusalem and they've been tasked by God to rebuild the temple. That's what they're meant to be doing, obeying God as part of their covenant relationship with him. That's where we're up to. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we read that they completed uh, the altar where the sacrifices were performed, but the rest of the temple needed to be complete. But sadly, remember for the last two weeks, the people have given up on the building project. Uh, They were worried about outside oppression, and they had the wrong priorities. Just flick over the page to Haggai chapter 1 and look at verse 4 with me. Because here we learn that actually the people were more bothered about looking after themselves and their own houses than God's house. Haggai 1 verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? You see, God's people are meant to be holy. They're meant to be set apart from the other nations. And one way that they showed their uh, holiness, their set-apartness, was by obeying what God said. I.e., building the temple. But this wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. The temple lay in ruins around the people, and this meant that they were defiled. And that's our first point defiled people. See, this section is the third of four speeches by Haggai that are words from the Lord. And this section is going to be a reminder to the people that unless their lives are centered around God, centered around worshipping Him properly, then they're not going to experience the life that God intended for them. They're not going to experience the blessings promised in his covenant relationship. So let's dive into our passage and have a look. Just look down at verse 10 with me. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says, "Ask the priests what the law says. Okay, just notice with me, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai again, and God asks him to go and quiz the priests. Now, I'm sure a lot of us uh, brought up in church might know a bit about the priests and what they uh, were doing, but some of us won't, so it's worth quickly exploring, who are the priests and what do they do? Firstly, who are the priests? See, the priests were people chosen by God to represent all the people of Israel to to him and to represent God to all the people. It's kind of a two-way role. They're set apart to do their work as priests. It wasn't uh, wasn't only their profession, sorry. But it's also their identity. These were priests coming from a line of priests. So if you were a priest, so would your father have been a priest and your grandfather all the way back. But what are the priests meant to do? Well, the priests were meant to do two main things. Firstly, they were to teach the people the law of God, the covenant of God, so that people could go out and obey it. And secondly, they worked in the temple. They sacrificed animals. They performed all the ceremonies prescribed in the Old Testament law. You see, the priests were completely fundamental to the way the Israelites related to God, acting almost like a middleman, a mediator. Without them, like the temple, none of it could work. Without them, the people couldn't really have a relationship with God because the sacrifices that needed to be made so the people could be right with God. So when we read that Haggai is going to ask the priests, we should be confident that these guys know what they're on about. They're going to give us the right answer about the law. So Haggai goes and he asks them two questions. And the first question is in verse 12. Just look at it uh, with me. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Now, you might be thinking, like I did when I first read it, what does that mean? It's a confusing question, so we're going to have to work hard to find the answer. Now, picture this with me. Is it someone carrying some meat to the temple as an offering to God prescribed in the Old Testament. And this meat is special because it's consecrated, that's the word it uses there, just meaning it's holy. See, this meat is set apart for a special purpose. That's what it means for something to be holy or consecrated. It's set apart from the normal things for a special reason. And now the best illustration of holiness I've ever heard came at a contagious conference, where we thought about holiness like your toothbrush. Hopefully this doesn't make it more confusing. But think about your toothbrush, it could be described in one sense as holy, because it's set apart for brushing your teeth, and hopefully nothing else. You wouldn't use it to brush your toilet, in that sense your toothbrush is holy, do we get that? It's set apart for a special purpose. And so in the same way, this meat is set apart for a special purpose, which was to be an offering to God. So the question that Haggai is asking, if something holy, something like this meat the special purpose meets, touches something ordinary, something unholy, like wine or olive oil, does the ordinary thing become holy? Are we following? And the answer the priest gives is no, okay? Imagine holiness like health. If you're a really healthy person with nothing wrong with you, sadly, you can't go to a hospital ward and hope that your health infects everyone on the ward and then they all become healthy. Health, sadly, is non-transferable And holiness, at least in this instance, is the same. It can't be transferred. And Haggai goes on to ask his second question then. So look down at verse 13 with me. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. It becomes defiled. This time Haggai asked the reverse of his first question. So instead of, can something holy make something else holy?, He's now asking, can something unholy make something else unholy? And look again at what the priests say. Yes, it becomes defiled. Just think with me again about the hospital illustration. If you're a healthy person and you go into a ward where there's a sickness or a bug going around, you can't transfer your health, but the sick people can sure transfer their illness to you. So what is Haggai's point with these questions? Why is he asking this, okay? He's saying holiness can't be transferred, but defilement can. Verse 14, we have the answer. Why is he asking? Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do, whatever they offer, is defiled. See, the big point that Haggai is making, the main thing he wants the people to understand is that they are defiled. They're unholy. And so everything they do is defiled. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, are somehow now unholy in God's sight. Like the person in verse 13 who has touched the dead body, everything they do is completely defiled. Now, we might be thinking, why is this such a big problem? What is he talking about here, Haggai? What does it mean to be defiled? How did the people come to be defiled? Well, it's such a big problem because even when the people thought they were pleasing God, by worshiping him by doing the ceremonies that they were meant to, by going to the altar and offering sacrifices, God is saying it was all unholy. It was all defiled. It didn't please God, even though they were doing what he told them to. God's very own people were becoming unpleasant in his sight. He was angry with his people. There was a blockage in the relationship between God and his people. Their defilement broke that relationship. Just imagine thinking that you, just because you performed the right acts you are pleasing God. That doing stuff dutifully was enough. Well, sadly, isn't this the reality for many of us? That we think just doing the right stuff, saying the right words is enough. Maybe if I just play my part on a Sunday, say enough at the small group, that'll see me through, right? But we have to ask ourselves, are we really pleasing God if we aren't really living authentic gospel lives? I'll put it another way, is being a Sunday Christian all God calls us to? But maybe you're here today and you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. Let me ask you, are you sure God is pleased with you? If you died tomorrow and you came face to face with God, will your life be good enough? Do you think you would make the grade? Can I ask you to think about that? And we're going to come back to that and answer that question later. Let's go back into Haggai, and the question is, how did this happen? How did the people go from being holy and pleasing to God to being unholy and defiled and displeasing to him? We've already thought about it, haven't we, for the last two weeks. Fundamentally, it was because they didn't build the temple. The people were too concerned about themselves and not concerned enough about God. Not building the temple was the outward symptom of a deep, inward heart problem. It exclaimed that they didn't really care about God. They didn't really care about keeping his covenant. The ruins of the temple were like the dead body in verse 13. It meant the people were defiled, so everything they did was defiled. See, they came to the altar and offered sacrifices while being surrounded by the carcass of the ruined temple. These people came to offer the bodies of dead animals, but they were offering it on the dead body of the temple. They were called on God to forgive them, but went home and were only concerned about their nice paneled houses and comfortable living. And Haggai goes on to explain to them that this is why life isn't working out for you. You're not acting in the right way, you're not being obedient to God, so you're experiencing a life without the blessings of his covenant. So that moves on to our next point, difficult life. Just look down in your Bibles at verse 15 with me. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive oil have not borne fruit. Haggai is saying, remember what it was like before you built the temple, before you even started to build the temple. Firstly, he says, instead of having more than enough, which is what God promised them in the Old Testament, they had less than they wanted In verse 16, we get this picture of someone wanting to get 50 measures of wine from a big container. But instead, there was only 20. Secondly, Haggai tells them that God himself struck their work. Why did he do that? Well, he did it so they would return to him. So it was an act of discipline from the Lord. Verse 17 tells us that there were crops that had blight and mildew, which meant they would die and couldn't be eaten. The harvest was ruined. He goes on to say, verse 19, that all the trees were being unfruitful. No vines meant no grapes, which meant no wine, which means the people couldn't celebrate. No pomegranates was a symbol for the lack of fruit in the land. And the olive tree was used to make olive oil, which was so fundamental to cooking meals and bread. But do we get the picture Haggai is painting for the people here? He's saying life is not as it should be. Life is not as it should be. God struck the work of their hands as a discipline, so they would sort out their priorities, and they would return to the Lord's. But verse 17 tells us they still didn't return to him. They didn't recognize what God was doing, encouraging them to come back to him. Think back um, to our Ikea furniture illustration from when James was preaching. You see, you can have all the right bits, can't you, to build your Ikea furniture. But if you just go for it, if you don't look at the instructions, then it's going to be seriously hard work, and it's probably not going to end well. Even if your wife lovingly removes some of the screws as a hint to use the instructions, but you plow on anyway, then something is definitely wrong. You see, God wanted his people to come back to him and follow the covenant by building the temple. But he said, Yet you did not return to me. They refused to. No doubt, confused. Why is life so hard? God promised blessing, yet what we're experiencing feels more like a curse. We're doing the sacrifices, but the harvest still isn't coming. We're performing the ceremonies at the altar, but there's still not enough wine to celebrate. What is going on? And Haggai is declaring to the people, it's because of your disobedience. You aren't being authentic followers. Rather, you're caring about yourself and your own houses. He's trying to show them that life with God on the periphery is going to make life very hard for these Israelites. Their work isn't fruitful. Their harvest and barns are empty. They can't enjoy the life that God promised them in his covenant. They're enjoying the covenant blessings while they live in disobedience. But this is about to change. Remember, Haggai is talking about life before they started to build the temple. He said, remember what it was like. Remember how bad it was in the past. So there is hope for these Israelites. That's what Haggai has come to preach them, a message of hope. And his hope is based because God is gracious. God is gracious, and when they turn to him in obedience, God promises to be good to them. And so our final point is gracious God. Gracious God, look down at verse 19 with me. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. God is saying that no more will he curse the work of their hands. No longer will their trees not produce fruit. No longer will all their religious activities be defiled in his sight. See, God's blessing isn't a small thing in this passage, but a massive thing. God is blessing his people. It's not just about them getting things. It's not just about material blessings. No, it's about relationship with him. God's blessing is seen most clearly as he has a relationship with his people You see, the fruit and the wine and all those other things are the evidence of God's blessing, not the blessing itself. He blesses them materially because they're in a right relationship with him. And in this, God is saying to his people that the most important thing is to put him and obedience at the center of their lives. Remember, the people were doing all the religious activities. They were going to the altar. They were probably reading the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. They were probably praying But inside, they didn't mean it. They were faking it. They were faking their obedience to God, and God could see through it. You see, if they'd really cared about God, they would have built the temple. They would have obeyed what he commanded them to and not spent time building fancy houses, fancy paneled houses for themselves. Haggai is trying to expose the Israelites as fakes and phonies. But he says, after they returned to God and rebuilt the temple when they started not only to keep talking the talk, but also walk the walk with God at the center, then they get the blessings of relationship with the almighty creator God and the good things that flow from it. So friends, can I ask us, do our lives match up with our claims? I think Haggai's warning to us here today is are we being fakes? Are we the real deal? Are we those real people who are authentic Christ followers? Or are we just all talk? Now we need to think carefully as we apply this passage specifically. You see, Haggai was speaking first and foremost to the Israelites under the Old Covenant. And he speaks to us today as we apply it through Christ. We need to remember that all of Scripture is about Jesus. So we might ask the question, where does Christ come into this passage? Well, the people were disobedient, remember. Remember. And that disobedience meant that the people were defiled, they were unpleasing to God. There was a blockage in the relationship between God and his people. Much like there was for us before we were rescued. And to help us think this through, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 1174 of the church Bibles. And as you turn there, let me say that the wrong thing to take from this passage in Haggai is that the authentic gospel life is about trying harder, that the Israelites just needed to work a bit harder at obedience, whip themselves up into a frenzy, and then they'd get all the good stuff from God. That is not what Haggai 2 is saying. Remember, in God's grace, he brought them back from the exile. He rescued them, brought them back to the promised land, not because they deserved it, not because they'd been obedient, but because he's merciful and God is faithful to his covenant. Haggai is calling the Israelites in this passage to obey the covenant, Build the temple as people rescued by God. You see, to be authentic Israelites, it meant living out their identity as God's special possession. It isn't a message of obedience to gain a right relationship with God. But God has promised the right relationship, and now it's time to obey. And this is where Ephesians comes in for us. You see, Paul is writing here to a church, this side, our side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. A people called and rescued, and now he's saying it's time to live in obedience. So let me read from verse 1 of chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I think Paul, in these verses, uh, helpfully answers two big questions we've talked about in this talk. Firstly, can we, in our own power, live a life pleasing enough to God that he lets us into heaven? And secondly, he answers, what does it mean to be authentic in our gospel living? So let's think about the first question. The one I asked you to kind of think about if you were a guest here and you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian And the question was, can we in our own power live a life pleasing enough to God that when we die, he lets us into heaven? Simply put, no. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. He says we're a sinful people. That is, we are people who've rebelled against God, and spiritually speaking, therefore, we are dead. We cannot obey God by our own strength. We cannot work hard enough at good things, at charity work, at being nice. The plain truth is that we are dead in our sins, and it does not take an Albert Einstein to work out that dead people can't do a lot for themselves. But if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here, and this sounds a bit off-putting, sounds a bit offensive to you, just listen again to the glorious gospel that comes in verse 4. Look at it with me. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Do we see the good news there? Even though we were dead because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against God, God himself took the initiative and he made it possible for us to be alive through Christ. How does this happen? Well, we know that Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect, obedient life. The kind of life the Israelites in Haggai's time and us here today could never live. Yet what did Jesus do with his obedience? He chose to die on a cross. He chose to take all the anger of God against our sin on himself. So that we would no longer be dead in our transgressions. But very much alive. If we trust that Jesus died in our place, we too can experience this new life with God, forgiven with a restored relationship, no longer fearing his judgment, just expecting his gracious welcome. If you are here tonight and you don't yet trust in Christ, can I encourage you at the end of the service, just take some time, read over these verses in Ephesians. Meditate on the fact that God himself has made you a way to be right with him. But what about for those of us who are here who would call ourselves Christians tonight? How does Ephesians help us as we think about applying Haggai 2 to our lives? About not being fakers or phonies, but living authentic gospel lives. How is it going to help? Let's look again at verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Haggai, in his day, was calling the people to live out the obedience they were called to as members of God's covenant community. Today, as Ashley and James have helpfully told us over the last two weeks, the church is now the covenant community. The church is the temple, and we're going to obediently build it up as we speak the truth in love to one another. We need to strive to be Christians who not only talk a good game on Sundays and in small groups, but practice what we preach. We're called to be obedient to the commands of God in the New Testament, to grow daily in the likeness of Christ. Not because obedience saves us. Paul makes it clear we're saved by grace, the undeserved kindness of God shown in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's not obedience that saves us. But because God has prepared these good works of obedience for us in advance, that's why we do them. Look at verse 10 again with me. That's where it tells us that God has prepared in advance good works for us. Richard Cochin helpfully suggests that we should delight in serving Jesus not to be saved, but because we have been saved. You see, we need to put sin to death. We need to grow in our love for Jesus. We need to grow in our love for his word and for his people And you see, week by week, we're gonna be struck as the word is preached, as the spirit does its work within us, convicting us of our sin. And we need to be obedient to that and put it to death and grow in our holiness and obedience. But you might be sat here and you might be riddled with guilt and a sense of failing. You know you already feel like you aren't being as obedient as you could be. You know you aren't spending all the time you have in the week rightly. You aren't making wise decisions. You aren't reading everything that you should. But friends, we believe in a gospel of grace. Yes, we need to strive to be obedient by the power of the Spirit. But when we fail, there is grace and mercy and kindness. Remember, the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers to approach the throne of grace in their time of need. Not the throne of wrath and fury because they failed. They've messed up once again a throne of grace, a throne of mercy and love. The challenge of Haggai is to live that authentic gospel life. To not just be following Christ on Sundays, but throughout the week, in all circumstances, and in all situations. But don't forget that when we inevitably fail in our obedience to God, there is grace. So keep fighting sin. Keep striving to be more holy. But don't do it as guilt-trip people but as rescued sinners. Don't do it as beaten down, duty-bound slaves, but as children who love to obey their Heavenly Father. Those saved by Jesus, made alive by His grace. Do it because you're called to live authentic gospel lives as rescued and redeemed people. Let's pray.